As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. Listening to Burn and Return, a weekly one hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turf grass industries. Ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, and those of you about to be or maybe already have been on the business end of a turkey's gizzard, it's time for Burn Return. Oh yeah, ooh, ooh, Sheila. Yeah, Sheila. Wow. Now Ray, Ray's here with us, and uh, Ray, what does Sheila like to eat besides Ray for Thanksgiving? Well, usually it is ribs. Ooh. Usually it's ribs. Now I, I, I got to tell I, I got to tell a funny story about ribs here uh, with Ray. So this is going back to Louisville here. Uh, last month, and uh, we go to this uh, barbecue joint, and we we go in, and we order our food, and we you know everybody eats, and well, you know it was good, it was solid, you know barbecue, it wasn't the best, but it was solid. And come out of there, and Ray's <laughs> kind of got this crummy look on his face, and I say, Ray, what happened, Jay? You know, was his ribs not good? And he was like, not so much that they weren't good. He said, when I order ribs, I expect a full rack, not this half rack shit. So, you know, there was a little <laughs> bit of an adjustment period for Ray coming over to the continental United States. We do things differently here, Ray. There, you know, there is an obesity epidemic, except, you know, when you have a, uh, you know, uh, a strong back Hawaiian that comes over here that's used to carrying, uh, you know, five gallons at a time on a 88-pound uh, spray, or sprayer. You know, th- we're just not used to that over here. They're, everybody looks like <laughs> me over here. Yeah. <laughs> We're not. All right. I mean, uh... <laughs> it's it's all good. Listen, I think the most yeah. important thing is is that uh, we're here to give thanks, and we're thankful tonight because one of our good friends has stopped by to be our guest host tonight. Mel Matt is still on the bench. He's coming back here, hopefully, uh, sometime here early next month. It sounds like is what we're hearing uh, that his big stuff will be finished mm-hmm. up. But tonight, tonight, we have with us Mister Evie. Evie, how in the hell are you? I'm doing good. He's doing good. He's traumatized from the pre-show. Uh, you know, he's not saying much. <laughs> there was a period there where you couldn't see if you weren't on video, but he was curled up in the fetal position and crying uh, because of some of the things that were said. And it wasn't directed at him. It was just more of observations on life in general. And so if you want to learn more about that kind of stuff, about, you know, the things that make us tick or the things that uh, keep us from going crazy, as it would have, uh, check us out, www.com. Dot, or www.patreon.com forward slash burn return. Again, uh, that, that's uh, a place where you can go and see all of our behind-the-scenes content, our pre-shows, our after-shows. This particular show, we even take the time at the end to allow all those that are watching us live, and we'll usually have a couple, two, three dozen people that will watch us tape this live every Sunday night, and they'll be able to help us name these shows. So all the show titles that you see 
on your favorite podcast outlet, on the YouTubes, everything like that. We don't make any of that up. That's literally made up on the spot by our uh, very, very loyal, dedicated viewers that join us for the live taping each night, just like they are tonight. So we'll see what they come up with. So if you don't like the show title, if you're triggered by it, whatever, you're just going to have to write to uh, all of our patrons and bitch at them. Sorry. Now, with that being said, (laughs) gentlemen, why don't we dive right into the headlines? Gentlemen, uh, right now, the headlines are, uh, it's pretty interesting. They're, these are kind of a, a, a riding the ray between uh, burns and returns. And so, first, let's talk about uh, stakeholder groups calling on Congress to reaffirm pesticide uh, preemption. So, more than 300 stakeholder groups uh, are calling on Congress to reaffirm pe- pesticide preexemption on labeling and pack- packaging. These groups warn that failing to do so would result in dangerous consequences for food security, the environment, public health, vital infrastructure, and other uses where pesticides provide important societal benefits. So basically here, gentlemen, what they're saying is FIFRA, the Federal Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which was passed back in the 30s originally, says that uh, that's the law that governs all pesticides across the land federally, says shall not impose or continue in effect any requirements for labeling or packaging in addition to or different from those as required by the federal government. So what's happening now, gentlemen, is that uh, different states are kind of getting a little mixed up into saying, hey, we think it should look like this, you know, on a label in terms of uh, some of the language that's on there, some of the the information that's on there. Yes, sir. What I think actually is happening is not so much that, so much as Certain states have taken it upon themselves to basically rewrite the labels for a specific purpose, normally to impose more stringent requirements slash prohibitions slash backdoor bans on specific products. I mean, that is the exact issue, and it's that is what. A preemption is is that it enjoins or prohibits a state from making their rules above and beyond what the EPA and FIFRA require. Because if left to their own devices, certain states that I will not name will see fit to do so, and therefore, you know cause uh, issues with various industries such as agriculture and the turf ornamental and nursery market. Yeah, yeah, and I think that a lot of folks don't understand, uh, you know, beyond just what we consider to be, you know, uh, typical pesticides, what that all covers, right? So there is a whole other Pandora's box that gets opened when you allow states to do that type of thing, right? Other products that we use in daily life that are used in daily life around us Certainly, I can see where it could be confusing and problematic. So I'm going to ask Evie, who works in, and we won't say what type of industry that he works in, but he does work in an industry that is uh, fairly well regulated by the federal government. And so, Evie, let's just say that in your industry, right, that the states, uh, uh, you know, all 50 states had the ability to just come in and say, hey, you know what, the way that you do things in Ohio versus Florida 
versus Tennessee are going to be a little bit different than what you might be used to. How badly would that, well, uh, fuck shit up? <laughs> Definitely would. You would see. <laughs> well, I mean, you kind of already see it to an extent with taxes, but um, yeah. businesses move quickly and you find the cheapest, uh, least invasive um, path to go down where you can make the most profit. And so in terms of pesticides, I can easily see the companies, rather than trying to deal with this added regulation, they just mm-hmm. decide, well, we're just not going to offer it in that state. And that just saves the entire state and farmers and agriculture businesses just out of whatever it may be due to the exactly. added pressure. Exactly. And I think that's where you know these stakeholders are going, mm-hmm. Ray, is that they're saying, hey, we, our folks, farmers, turf managers, right, they need predictable access to these tools. So by preempting, right, and exactly what you're saying, saying that, you know, no state can make a law that supersedes federal law with respect to this particular act, right? So, I mean, how does mm-hmm. this end up, do you think, between the tug of war here of maybe some more uh, localized activists versus the federal government? Okay, what that basically does is that basically limits their ability to drive businesses out of a state because by the way ryan i was telling everybody that that kind of already happened in hawaii when it was decided that there would be special requirements put upon users of restricted use pesticides specifically any restricted use pesticide employed in the seed corn research and production fields here in Hawaii. I want to say former seed corn research and production fields because all of those businesses basically left Hawaii. And that is because there were additional requirements placed upon these operators above and beyond what labeling required and above and beyond what was done in other states. And so these companies decided, okay, you don't want us here. Okay, we're leaving. We're going. And they took all of their money and all of their jobs with them. And, I, I, you know, you just wonder, you know, to AV's point, right, of how quickly mm-hmm. businesses move because they, you know, they're not sitting they on the sidelines for yeah. this. They are not mm-hmm. going to participate in, mm-hmm. a, in a world, right, where there's uncertainty. There's no sense to do that. And so I think it'll be interesting to see you know, um, just how far down the wormhole we end up going here. Hopefully, though, uh, Washington and the folks there, huge knock on wood, will prevail and uh, say that, listen, we still need to have this preemption, and here's why. And I think it's uh, a very, very good reason. Now, speaking of preemption or the lack thereof, let's jump over to Europe, where things are much, much more murky. (laughs) And, well, uh, ain't nobody stuffing the bird over there this week, guys. So here's the thing. Um, We talked a little bit about this bill before that the EU uh, in their uh, Agriculture and Health and Safety Commission has put forth, right, that would change, fundamentally change the way that food production is viewed and uh, and actually completed there in Europe. And so uh, EU countries are pushing back against the European Commission's plans to radically slash the use of pesticides in the bloc, arguing now is not the time to put food production 
in jeopardy. So it goes on to say here that the bill seeks to reshape food production in Europe and its environmental impact. But with rising food prices, fertilizer shortages in the wake of the war with Ukraine, coupled with farmers and chemical companies fearful of lower yields, the proposal was poorly received in the Council of the EU. So it's interesting. They go on to say here that uh, essentially they're asking for more data, right? There's a certain segment of folks there within this particular body that's saying, hey, you know, that's all well and good, but can you show us how that this is going to happen, right? And uh, so far, there's not been a lot. This has been going on since June of this year. And uh, quite mm-hmm. honestly, uh, they're looking at here, um, they're looking at ways that they can kind of backtrack, right? So uh, in a bid to placate uh, the capitals before Wednesday's meeting, the commission shared a paper obtained by Politico, which was suggested open uh, to climbing down on key areas of the bill months after refusing to budge. So basically, the people that wrote this bill, the people that are, are sort of trying to reshape things, are basically signaling here nearly six months into this that nothing's happened, nothing of, uh, of uh, any real progress, and now they're saying, hey, these might be the areas that we could you know, uh, you know, take some L's on, essentially, right? So instead of uh, mm-hmm. you know, they move away from a total ban of all pesticides into favoring pesticides that use low-risk ones while still allowing most pesticides to be used in ecologically sensitive areas and slimming down the total area of those protected zones to only the most relevant areas. Uh, so bottom line is this, is that uh, they've, they're, now they're getting pushback on the, on the other side, right, the folks that want to reshape this, and there's really no level of... Uh, what this is going to actually turn out to be, right? There's nobody that's saying, hey, it's going to either stay status quo or it's going to go this other way. But it really does seem like things are moving in the direction, right, where there's going to have to be a lot, a lot of compromise on the, uh, we'll call it the uh, the new way of thinking, right, the new school of thought there. So I guess the question here is, gentlemen, is what can we learn here on more of a a localized scale, right? Because... There's nothing like this yet. There was a bill that was put forth, I think, last year by Senator Cory Booker uh, out of New Jersey, and it talked a lot about you know limiting pesticides, I think, around schools and public places and things like that, but not so much in agriculture. So if we get to the point that we've got to start considering, hey, what would we be you know, be willing to give up from our perspective, what would those things be? But also, what would be the things that you'd say, hey, absolutely not, the sand, line's in the sand right here and we're not giving up either this product, this practice, whatever it might be. And think about turf in particular, because we're low-hanging fruit, and they will come after us first. There's no question about it. So, Ray, what do you think? Okay, what I think is, unfortunately, too many people maintain turf grass is absolutely the enemy. But I can tell you here locally that a lot of the public spaces here in Hawaii are invaded by broadleaf weeds bearing thorns. And those thorns are a hazard to, you know, kids, people, and even a dog walking, you know, across the park. You know, that is the effect of a pesticide prohibition or a reluctance to treat areas is how do you deal with 
issues relating to actual public health and safety in the face of a ban on uses on turf grass, especially uses of on turf grass in public areas? Because my answer, if I were God, would be, you know what? We have this gnarly, thorny weed that is putting spikes into people's dogs and into their kids' feet. Let's spray it and get rid of it. You know, let's not have this because this is not healthy. And it's yeah. even more unhealthy than, than, you know, what is, you know, the, how shall I say, the speculated harms that could be attributed to a pesticide application. Because we're talking about thorns, for example, getting embedded in dogs, getting embedded in kids' feet, and then that causing infection, you know. Because you have a puncture wound in this in the skin, how is that healthy? <laughs> well, and I think we, that's we definitely go ahead. Go we ahead. definitely don't have to deal with anything like that up where I am. But um, I think in general, it's you know I read in the article too that it's being too ambitious too quickly, and there you when go. you try to change have these policy changes that move rapidly where practices cannot keep up to the point of sustaining what we're currently doing. That's when you're leaving a gap right. in the market and you see decline and you know exactly what they're trying to do with the EU. If mm -hmm. they're moving too quickly, you know, they realize that they're going to start seeing some problems arise, whether it be from food shortage or, you know, crops or, I mean, wine in France, whatever it may be. Um, yeah. And, and, and there's Evie, not, I would say there's the, not any, go ahead, Ray. And here's the other problem or the issue is that you have a shortage in Europe, of course, then essentially that burden or that problem gets transferred to the former colony countries that are in places like Africa or Asia. Yep. And we, I always talk about how the other issue becomes, okay, this crop or this product is not produced in the EU anymore because it's simply not economically viable, but now that production is exported to Africa or Asia, right? And Africa and Asia are not following the same, you know, stringent prohibitions and, and bans. And so essentially, what have you done? And, and, and on a side note, uh, I always give pause to the concept of saying, okay, we're going to ban this pesticide in this locality because what typically happens is that then gets exported. And by the way, how would you feel about this particular pesticide going from a place where people can read, write, and understand labels to a place where you have somebody that cannot read or, or write? or understand labels, and the guy is literally barefoot with the backpack spray leaking the stuff all over him. And that is this literal story or the truth about 
when these pesticides get exported to these other places outside of the EU and the United Time's States. Time's up, it's over. And it will be so, time's up and it's over for the poor guy that has all that shit leaking on him, too. Well, it's true. <laughs> and, and, and we export a lot of our problems and we import those pla- from those places that it's not our problem, right? And that, mm-hmm. uh, it's how much of that do you want to put up with? But also, Evie's, Evie's got an absolute uh, perfect spot on argument is that the thing that gets lost in all these situations, whether we're talking about some of the articles that are coming up that are hyper, hyper local, right? Or that there mm-hmm. are these issues that, that demand global attention, but they don't get it, right? Is that the velocity of change, right? I've used that term before, and it's so true in terms of uh, a lot of great ideas, right? And, and well-meaning ideas, right? I think everybody wants the same thing. Hey, if we didn't have to use so much bad shit to get the, uh, get the job done, we wouldn't. I don't think there's anybody that's sitting here riding the coattails of the pesticide industry, laughing their way to the bank, at least here on the end user side, right? We get fucked by them just as hard as anybody else. But the problem here is that it is not an idea issue. It is an implementation issue. And until that we, you know, as an industry can advocate for our positions and until politicians can hear us loud and clear that, hey, listen, we're trying to be part of the solution, but when you take one hand, put it behind our back, and you tie a center block to our legs, and you throw us in the fucking river, there ain't got a whole lot of good that's going to happen from it, right? So let's work together no. on this and figure out better ways to get this stuff done. All right. With that, uh, I'm going to take a look over here at uh, Landscape Management, which is a, uh, a trade publication here. Uh, it goes out to a lot of landscapers, LCOs, things like that. And I wanted to read this. I thought this was interesting. Uh, it talks about uh, Rob Elder. Rob is from Omaha Organics. Omaha is also located in Nebraska, for those of you who don't have a map. And uh, after having kids, Rob, the owner of Omaha Omaha Organics in Omaha, says he wanted to have a safe, sustainable, and beautiful lawn that his family and pets could enjoy, leading him to organic products. Elder is not alone. Many lawn care operators turn to biologicals and organics to improve soil structure and become more environmentally (laughs) conscious. Omaha Organics provides organic lawn care, maintenance, fall and spring cleanups for clients that are 75% residential, 20% commercial, and 5% municipalities. The business also manufactures and sells its own organic fertilizer products. Elder says a standard recommended annual organic service consists of a soil test, four applications of organic fertilizer, a fall aeration with seeding. Uh, depending on the needs of the lawn, technicians may use additional soil amendments like gypsum, phosphorus, lime, or top dressing. Raw materials and fertilizer applications contain one or more organic ingredients, including corn gluten meal, alfalfa, soy meal, kelp, molasses, and sulfate of potash. So that's organic, Rob. Uh, Omaha Organics also offers different types of soil amendments and pest control applications. Okay, we got that already. The biggest challenge that he has is concerns over cost. Organic products are typically more uh, expensive, he says. So he goes on to talk about, you know, organic lawn care is not a quick fix. It's not cheap. Uh, and they talk to a couple other folks in this, right? And so, gentlemen, I've got to ask, you know, in the face of, uh, you know, the current climate that we're in, right, you know, as uh, as society and everything like that, you know, clearly people are buying this. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to offer it. And I'm certainly not saying that people buy it are dumb for doing so. I'm just wondering, you know, how, you know, <sighs> How do you make the, 
how do you make this from a marketing standpoint, right? And do it without having to to, to sell any bullshit. That's my question. Because I you read, know, I read you know, just you, the, the primer on it, and I see bullshit in there. And that's my only question you know, is, like, how do you feel good about doing okay. this? And you can you be honest what? with people. Like, go ahead. Go ahead. Here's the thing, Ryan, is I'm of the type where, hey, I don't do what I do to virtue signal. I do what I do because it works. You know, no more, no less. Because in my industry, I see a lot of people virtue signaling and their virtue signaling bites me in the ass, bites their customer in the ass, and surprise, surprise, thanks to their virtue signaling and fuckery, that becomes the lawn and the landscape that's now on hospice care because their virtue signaling screwed everything up. I mean, hospice lawn care that's has where also I... been registered as a Delaware LLC while everybody was away during the last <laughs> taping, so I'm sorry, but uh, we had to. Evie... Yeah. Listen, I know you, you see a lot of, of content and uh, claims that are made. Let me ask you this, because I think you understand the science behind what these guys are trying to do, but I just think you also understand where the marketing goes. If you, if I said, hey, listen, this is Shark Tank, and you've got to pitch me your organic lawn care program and maybe set a few expectations, what would the real story look like? Because I, I think you can thread the needle. I <clears throat> I would say that it goes back to it's plants and turf are all natural beings and once we're self-sustaining on their own. And so we're using the same types of materials that they may, may have gotten, you know, in the past to sustain themselves that we're using them going forward instead of manufactured products. And I think that's the point, right? Is that we're we're providing the same building blocks, right? Uh, essentially, of how plants are, are, are obtaining you know, some of these nutrients and things like that. It's just a different mindset, right? So, uh, I just like I said, I read some of those sometimes and get thrown off track when people start throwing around, you know, like that sulfate of potash is uh, an organic product. It's uh, definitely, you know, like you said, it's definitely hard to make that without kind of spewing out some BS along the way as part of your sales tactics or yeah. you know, Ryan, at least having some key terms that mm-hmm. definitely or just may saying, or may or not just be say, true. There you go. Or just saying, hey, listen, some of the stuff that we have to put on your lawn is so basic and fundamental that we don't have a, a good source, right, that we can use here mm-hmm. in this loca- location or whatever. Uh, and we have to use this that's, you know, not necessarily natural or organic. So not shitting on them, just Here, saying, like, be, be a little bit more honest in how you set those expectations. Go ahead, Ray. Okay, Ryan, here's where I kind of bring it home to people is I break out a measuring cup. Usually it's like a oh, like a one-quart measuring cup, and I tell them, this measuring cup, can contain all the all the nitrogen your lawn and your landscape is going to need for the next month. Okay? And 
this nitrogen can easily be carried by me and it only takes me to apply. But if you want to do it the other way and be quote unquote virtuous, uh, you're going to need a crew of people and a much larger truck carrying tons and tons of organic matter to do the same thing. And I ask them, which process or method requires more fuel? Which, which process or method has more costs associated with it? Bottom line, no. Simple mess. Right? Yeah. Very simple mess. And uh, the other thing is, is that there's this one landscape that I'm dealing with right now where the previous practice was to absolutely strip away every single fallen leaf and grass clipping from that landscape. Yeah. I said, no more. Because I pointed something out to this person. I said, ever since that was no longer done on your landscape four months ago, you notice how your foliage plants are, are greening up and your, your plants look like they're alive again. And all of that is caused by, hey, letting nature do what it's doing in a sustainable cycle. A leaf falls to the ground, it decomposes, turns into mulch, and then returns the nutrients back to the soil, in, probably in the proportions that the plant wants in the first place. And, you know, and this is what I'm about, is I'm about creating a sustainable paradigm for a lawn and a landscape where it's basically self-maintaining for the most part, because to me, the insanity is, is the person that wants every single leaf and grass clipping picked up. However, they then bring up, oh, now the soil is depleted. We need to put things back and it's like hey hello ma'am you see that truck that haul, hauling away all that shit well guess what that's organic matter that your lawn and your landscape could have used on its own if we crazy humans stayed out of the way and let it do it you know so that's this is where you know I, I have issues with the so called you know, sustainable or quote unquote people selling organic things because to me, being sustainable is not only about buying my shit or using this certain product because it's better than other. It's all about actually implementing practices that make sense. Uh, now I'm off my soapbox. Making my point though of the with returning, you know, the leaf clippings or the grass clippings, mm -hmm. that that's a natural mm -hmm. way that it would break down in the past, and so mm -hmm. that's kind of how you have to market. I feel like organics, if you do, is that you're you want to continue those practices at the same way, but it's without getting too much into the BS of the sales. It just takes a little bit of education which is essentially right. your sales pitch to them that the synthetic mm -hmm. stuff is you know 
just as safe as the organics. You're not doing anything harmful to the thing. Or if there are any, you know, pesticides or fungicides, insecticides that you are using, you know, that there is little or some risk involved and whether they want that kind of risk associated with their property. But it's that education through your sales process where you explain to them that there is little risk. There is minimal risk. And I kind of have to point out that what I tell people when they ask about the pesticides is I can look them straight in the eye and be super truthful with them and tell them that by year 2000, all of the products and practices of the greatest concern all got either restricted or banned. Because by by year 2000, what happened, you know, and I think I brought this up on the Discord, is the FQPA stepped in and got all of the most hazardous products uh, off of the turf and ornamental and landscape market. Unfortunately, some of those products are still used uh, on fruits and vegetables, but, you know, as it relates to turf and ornamentals and what you're allowed to apply around a home, anything that's of concern to the FQPA, you know, no more. And some of the reasons for taking those products away were because, yes, they were highly toxic. And yes, Evie, as you know, I'm of the age where I got to use a lot of those highly toxic products. I mean, it was not... (laughs) Not funny, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know. I do not miss have... using them, so. Yeah, yeah. You, you kind of know what I'm talking about because <laughs> your father was in the nursery business and uh, unfortunately that's where some of the craziest things were used <laughs> in nurseries. Man, don't and you remember houses. when lawn darts were labeled for large patch? God, that was a great time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or how about uh, that uh, gas-powered pogo stick where <laughs> you you push the button and that shit sends your fat butt going uh, you know twenty feet up in the air. <laughs> no promises on how you land, though, Ryan. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was the adventure sports way of giving yourself a second. <laughs> but uh, in any regard, any regard. It is now time, gentlemen, for our favorite segment, and uh, that one is known as uh, Joe Knows Turf. (laughs) Joe Knows Turf! (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Joe. I'm going to give you a bunch of accurate turf facts today. Because Joe knows turf. <laughs> Joe most certainly does know turf, and uh, as a special tease for everybody here, uh, not the week of Thanksgiving, but the following week. I know, is it the following week? Or maybe the week yeah, after? Following week, December 1st. December 1st. December the 1st. Mark it on your calendars. Joe of Joe Knows Turf fame will be our special guest on Thursday, Thursday. So please. Pull up a beverage. <laughs> uh, we'll 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 try to do. Uh, I think we're gonna have uh, Alan Hain and Doctor Phil on. 
Uh, we're going to really try to bring <laughs> the band back together and, you know, hopefully Ray, myself, and, uh, you know, Matt or whomever else is here with us will just be there for the healing process. We're hopefully, <laughs> that's all we can hope for. But with that being said, we're going to dive into tonight's video. Uh, tonight's video was sent in uh, by a loyal follower of the show, somebody who is a patron and, uh, and adores our work deeply. I have not had the opportunity to watch this yet, and I don't know. Let me see how long this thing is here, Jay Pink, and uh, we can dive right in. Go ahead and throw it up, and uh, let's just see what we got here. Hey, guys, it's Russ, Lawn Journeys. It's time to get that last app down. This is a two-for-one. Don't go away. Pause. All right, so the first thing I saw, Ray, this video is mm -hmm. only four minutes and 42 seconds long. We'll, we'll watch it and pause as we go, but I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure of two things. One, that that is uh, a fertilizer that is impregnated with prodiamine or dimension because of the yellow bag. I'm almost certain of that. And I am damn sure that the uh, weight rating on that fucking trash can is less than 50 pounds because it's about to collapse and spill that bitch all over the grass. Yeah, so yeah, let, that bag is about to go down. <laughs> let's, get, let, let's see. Last app down. Uh, this is a two ahead. for one. Don't go away. Will that beat? Feel it? Yeah. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Lawn Journeys. It's Russ. It is November 12th. It's 70 degrees in, Jer in Jersey. It's crazy. But it's time to get that last app down. What I'm going with this year is a two for one. Now you may have seen me do two product applications in years past this year. I'm knocking it out in one because I don't know if I'm a little lazy or I just want to leverage some of these uh, great Anderson's products that's available out there. Um, this particular um, fertilizer, which there are links below, you can check it out, um, is an Anderson's barricade um, with fertilizer. Okay, so right, it's a pre-emergent weed control with the fertilizer application. This particular blend is 1804, so it's 18% oh nitrogen. Gosh. It has zero FOS and 4% potassium. Barricade with fertilizer 1804 is Anderson's professional gray pre-emergent weed and feed. As I mentioned, it contains 0.426% of active ingredient, which is the prodiamine. All right, so I just wanted to review the application instructions here. This is the Anderson's turf products with 0.426% barricade herbicide, 1804. As you can see, it's a uh, urea nitrogen fertilizer. The active ingredient is prodiamine. Um, it goes under the trade name of barricade by Anderson's. There is a mega list of weeds controlled. Um, you can link to this product in the show notes and um, review the full list. Depending on your application rate, there are instructions here on the interval before you can do an overseed by applying this type of product. If I'm applying it today at a four pounds per 1,000 square feet, I'm looking at approximately five months of protection. As I mentioned earlier, there's a number of spreader settings for convenience here. Um, all right, team, we're gonna load this product into the hopper. It's got that green prodiamine look. All right, so guys, as you can see, here's the product. Nicely granulated ready to apply. This product can be used on established lawns and landscape beds to prevent over 30 grass and broadleaf weeds like poa annua, crabgrass, goosegrass, foxtail, 
lamb squatter hen bit and more. The Andersons patented dispersible granule technology, which is the DJ, allows each granule to disperse into thousands of microparticles. Pause, which provides right, pause, 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 pause. Okay, first, uh, clearly he's reading off a card at this point. It's, it's, it's not good. Um, <laughs> I need to smoke a fucking cigarette for watching that. <laughs> there's a lot. There. <laughs> there's a all right. There's a lot. So this is Jonas. This is Jonas turf. And ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know what this is, this is not making fun of somebody because they're you know a, a shill or something like that. Although you know the guy's got links below and he's he's reading off a cue card. That's fine. Like the guy's trying to make a living. It's a side hustle. Whatever. That part's irrelevant. The part that isn't irrelevant is that we are in New Jersey. There's not one leaf on any tree in this picture. Well, maybe the whatever that little oak tree is in the back. And we're out there getting ready to apply Ray to cool season grass in November on the eastern seaboard, a pre-emergent herbicide. Uh, What in the fuck is going on here right now? I'm trying to make Uh, sense of this. I'm I'm trying to make sense of it myself because if this guy is in Jersey, I got to ask, you know, come... December 10th or December 15th, what exactly would be germinating or emerging in a lawn at that time that you need to control with a pre-emergent? Like, I can see using something like prodiamine or something a little stronger where I'm at. I can see doing that, say, in the southeastern United States, you know, because they have POA and other winter annual weeds coming up from seed in what's supposed to be dormant Bermuda. However, I, I, I cannot see the rationale for throwing down the full rate of prodiamine in the winter in Jersey. And I kind of want to ask, uh, you know, Joe the Lawn Warrior, if in his experience, an application like that is even necessary, because after all, Joe is from Jersey, right? So I gotta ask yeah, him. Yeah, Joe is see, from see, if, was, no. see what he thinks. I mean, because this just doesn't make sense to me, and that's even though I have no experience with weeds in New Jersey, but logically to me, it just is not making any sense. I mean, my mind is blown right now. <laughs> now, Evie, let me ask you this question: Is um of the major weeds controlled preventatively by prodiamine, right? Which of those weeds is going to be germinating in, say, the next, I don't know. Hell, I'll even give them the five months. I'll say just 90 days. Any of them? bit maybe? Poa maybe? <laughs> I mean, and then it's going to snow and freeze, and then it's going to snow and freeze, and and the weeds are going to die, so it won't matter. (laughs) Yeah, not the next ninety days. Yeah, not until it's late February, March for them. I'm sure. Right, and so I, I, I don't know if this if this gentleman has conflated what he's seen with uh, folks that are further south, as Ray's alluded to. Or if this is just a money grab, I'm not sure what the motives are, but I'd sure like to know 
why or whom suggested that in cool season grass to make this type of application. Now, if you are so inclined as to do something like this, there's a couple things you should know. One, you should be doing this way earlier, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. typically we see poas start to germinate when we get soil temperatures down closer to the 50s, and that's only on the annual types, right? So a lot of the poa that we see in our lawns is actually a perennial type, even though it's called poa annua, it's variety reptans, which makes it a perennial plant. It never really goes away. It just kind of withers and looks like shit in the summertime when it gets real hot, and it bounces right back up like a prize fighter on an eight count, and then it hits you in the face again the next year. So that all being said, there's real no, really no benefit here on the poa side, especially at this juncture. So let's just see how this all plays out the last two minutes or so of this video. And uh, yeah. allows each granule to disperse into thousands of microparticles, which provides better coverage and contact with your turf. Applying at four pounds Pause. per 1,000, I'm getting. Okay. He's clearly reading off a card there because he, we don't care about contact with the turf with the DG. The DG is a fantastic formulation. Literally the market leader, the best thing that you can get right now if you're uh, applying you know, any product like this or. Um, you know, any fertilizer, really. Best thing out there, bar none. Uh, that all being said, we're not looking for contact with the plant because there's absolutely nothing that it will do because we need to provide or make it that, uh, that active ingredient down in the soil so it can provide a vapor barrier for seeds to not germinate, even though they won't because the soil temperatures are going to be below 40 degrees, probably below 20 degrees here pretty soon, and there'll be nothing growing actively. So that's, you know, the irrelevant point here, but let's go ahead and see what else he says five months of protection that'll take me to mid-April so if I do my next pre-emergent application in March there's going to be a little bit of an overlap and I'm good to go into full crabgrass germination okay so uh, pay attention to those instructions on the bag if you're using this product at a different time of the year say the spring okay um, applying at four pounds per 1,000 if I put this down in the spring I wouldn't be able to do an overseed until at least July most people don't overseed in July but you need to look at the instructions on the bag follow the instructions because there is a residual of uh, prodiamine that will stay in the ground creating that vapor barrier which will stop germination once it starts so you know you're shutting things down so if you have any plans to do a spring seeding for some reason if you apply this material now you're probably not going to want to seed until sometime in april that may be okay with you but it's just something to be cognizant of all right team so that covers a two for one winterization which is a fertilization with pre-emergent weed control i wish you guys a happy holiday season thanksgiving is almost upon us get out there get it done make sure you put your turf to sleep in a healthy and responsible manner fuck okay what that was just a visceral (laughs) that was just a visceral reaction i'm sorry i that i swear to god that i didn't know okay in a healthy and responsible manner. Uh, listen, I, I, this guy, I probably sit down and have a beer with him. I don't want him to think that we're picking on him. It's just, dude, you, you put out some stuff that's beyond questionable and uh, bordering on suspect in the way that it is presented. So here's what I want folks to know, right, from our panel to the rest of the world, is that please uh, don't feel inclined that you need to put a pre-emergent herbicide out on your cool season turf 
anything past, oh, I'm going to say, like, September. And that's really pushing it if you're in a POA window that you would get, you know, uh, soil temperatures down into the 50s consistently in that time of year. You're going to be somewhere in the bottom end of the transition zone, right, growing cool season grass. Even then, right, even then, I question the, uh, the, the, the timing and the nature of that application to Oh, we just lost the main mid Lost, just, lost like, him oh, right in the oh, middle. Throwing down eight oh, tenths of back. a pound. Oh, oh man, audio throwing back, down eight tenths of a pound of nitrogen. What the hell is happening? Hang on. Yeah, eight tenths of a pound of nitrogen at a time when it's obvious to me that the leaves have already come off the trees, and I'm imagining that his grass is not even actively growing. So. I'm trying to figure out what would be needed. And, you know, Ryan and Evie, I had a weird question because you're obviously way more up north than I am. But what do you think would happen to prodiamine put down on soil that's about to be frozen? I cannot imagine good things happening of that. And, you know, he's painting a happy picture of five months of you know pre-emergent coverage where i'm i'm under the idea that once the ground freezes the clock stops on the degradation or the breakdown of that prodiamine and it'll just suspend and wake back up next spring when it does warm up and then he's going to probably stack more pre-emergent on on that application and all I got to think now is when you start doing that, oh my, poor grass. Because we all know how herbicides like prodiamine work, right? Is it works by inhibiting roots. That's how come it's very good on crabgrass. That's how come it's pretty good on poa annua, is that it keeps the roots of those gra- grassy weeds from, you know, germinating from seed and developing but that root inhibition effect also applies to your desirable lawn bingo that was the last point i was just about to make is that what happens right when we get into these Mm -hmm. altered states of reality especially uh in new jersey right where we have you know longer periods of thaw and or high temperatures that begin to wake the grass up and stimulate not only top growth but root development now we're in a, a situation where we've got pre-emergent there. And guess what, folks? Guess <laughs> what? Prodiamine doesn't give a shit whether you're a desirable turf grass root or you are the enemy in some type of weed root, right? And I'm not saying that it's going to kill your existing grass, but it will. It will absolutely have an effect, okay? So all that being yeah. said, uh, it's 37 degrees soil temperature right now. We uh, our, our show producer extraordinaire has looked this up and provided this information in my earpiece and it wasn't like i was you know let me let me do it uh another way Mm. i'm getting a note here that says anderson's dg fertilizer spreads on contact the best that ever was except for when it's Mm -hmm. 37 fucking degrees in the soil at a two inch depth (laughs) yeah i mean and, and you see i'm just kind of wondering what is the merit 
or the utility of an application like that when it's getting cool, it's about to snow, and basically both weeds and grass have basically gone to sleep for the season. It's like, what is the, the purpose of this all? And my, my last issue is, isn't it kind of late in the year to be putting down nitrogen? That was the point I that I as I was cut off there. That's uh, something that I was trying to point that I was trying to make is that uh, eight tenths of a pound is a lot in this particular case mm-hmm. to go ahead and do. And based on what I'm seeing here, that yeah, really, it's got a a nitrogenase inhibitor, right? So it's uh, what is it, four point five of eighteen percent? So you know, under thirty percent, twenty five percent. What is that? Four point five. Oh, by 18. It is 25% uh slow release nitrogen just with you know it's it's not a good it's not not a good situation. All right. We got to move on uh but listen, guy, you're probably watching this, you took everything to heart, took it all personally. Don't you know, just do a little bit of research first. Call seriously, I I call Andersons and say, "Hey, is this a good idea to put down?" I guarantee if you had talked to one of their agronomists, they would have said, "Hmm." Probably not. Maybe let's put you into this mm-hmm. situation here if you're in New Jersey. So use your resources, use your network. If it's as limited as Anderson's, well, that's not you know even so bad. But uh, broaden your horizons, and hopefully you can put your bed, uh, put your lawn to bed uh, responsibly next year. Try again. All right. <laughs> now moving on. Listen, Ray. If there's anything that's gonna uh, make Sheila scream more than getting her bird stuff this weekend. It's bound to be <laughs> our birds. Fire! You know, Ray, I'm told that you're the only one that can answer this uh, because you know <laughs> yeah. the only one that's been inside, but uh, I heard that Sheila has a really good recipe for giblet gravy. Is that true? True. Extremely true. true. Yep. <laughs> yep, I've heard uh, when you add, li- add lipstick to it, it tastes even better. Uh, our first burn here tonight <laughs> is uh, coming to us here from Manteca, California. And, uh, boys, they're going through a tough time there in Manteca, city of 90,000 people. And uh, they've got the animal shelter there at the corner of Wetmore and South Main Street. And they have not been able to mow the grass in months, so much so that the volunteers that uh, work there at the shelter have taken to mowing the grass themselves with their own mowers that they bring in from home. So uh, the uh, the mayor got a little pissed off and says, hey, as a community of 90,000 people, we should be able to afford a lawnmower, he said during the council meeting. We should not have to depend on volunteers to maintain city property. His comments were made after several people spoke up as part of a group of community volunteers helping at the shelter. They're trying to shed some light on the shortcomings in a bid to have the city take corrective measures. The lack of a lawnmower that council was made aware of several months ago when others spoke about the animal shelter needs prompted a formal presentation on the condition of the facilities. Shelter policies at a council meeting last month says that progress is being made to get turf in place that would be more weeds than grass. I think they screwed that line up, but whatever. They also noted that it's got several gopher holes as well as posing a safety issue for the dogs and humans. All right, staff indicated specifications are being made for a contractor to do the turf work. As for the lawnmower, 
It was indicated that the division that maintains the landscaping at city facilities hasn't had a small mower to do such a job for a number of years. All right. There's a lot going on there, okay? Number one. Okay, this is what happens when you don't maintain turf, right? We get gopher holes. We get vertebrate pests, right, Ray? We get invertebrate mm-hmm. pests. We get a lot of different things. So, uh, yeah, what's going on for there? Ev- for everybody clamoring and saying that, hey, this, you know, we can just let this stuff go. It could be native. It could be great. It can be natural. I hope you understand. Yeah. It can be natural. I hope mm-hmm. you understand what you're getting into. And that, you know, listen, I don't mind a go for two. You know, I don't mind some insects. If you, if you, if you're into, you know, if you have a tick fetish, you know, having tweezers on your skin, this might be for you. Um, or or maybe you all like with. fire ants. Maybe you all like fire ants. I, I don't know because the uh, true story is that literally as an initiation into adulthood, I heard that a certain tribe in South America makes this gigantic stinging ant bite boys as part of an initiation. What? <laughs> yeah. Ray, what kind of yeah. discovery channel shit are you watching? Uh, all kinds of scary, horrific stuff where... I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, sometimes reality is a lot more scary and gruesome than fantasy. I mean, because, yeah, it's literally it's a, a tribe in South America that that's what they do to their teenage boys is they subject them to ant bites. And these wow. ants are called bullet ants. And the reason why they're called bullet ants is be, because the bite is so painful that it's almost like getting shot with a gun. <laughs> the things you learn from Ray are always the most uplifting and uh, inspiring, <laughs> I should say. If there was, uh, if there's still demotivational posters that were a thing, I, I think Ray could be uh, our next <laughs> author. Evie, here's a question I've got to ask you, because as the owner, as the new proud owner of a Ego Walk Behind uh, electric mower, battery-powered how in the fuck does a city of 90,000 people not be able to go down to Home Depot for what? Three, four, five hundred bucks? I don't know what it costs, right? And, and requisition I one. That, yeah. I would assume yeah. that you know, these folks could take care of a small lawn with that mower. I mean, can you speak to uh, its reliability, dependability? Because even this is California, gas powered equipment's going away. So just being a little bit more forward thinking. You know, what would it take for, uh, you know, the bureaucracy to step aside for a moment and come to their senses on, you know, a mower for a small space? I mean, you could even go one step further if you wanted, and you could go completely green and use a push manual reel mower. I mean, that's what I've been doing for the past year, and that works out great. I mean, just a little bit of exercise, but... um, you know, mm-hmm. that's the most sustainable zero gas, zero emissions. And all you need to do is the emissions to pick it up and get it to the place and set for the entire time. But for uh, even an electric, those there, I've been blown away by just how well they performed, um, especially in small spaces. And they're lighter than like 
just a regular engine push mower. Um, so mm-hmm. the maneuverability for a volunteer that's working in an animal shelter would be much easier than any sort of commercial unit that they're trying to get. And that's what I'm saying. Is wow. the volunteer or city workers? It's you know you, you show up. I'm gonna see how big this lawn is. I'm, while you guys are talking, I've got I've got to know just how lazy. And listen, I used to be a city worker, so I can speak on this. Okay, that we're more like how bullshit excuse. Oh, we don't have a mower small enough for that. We're not doing it. What? Oh, or, or for a municipality so disorganized and so not have its shit together, right? To where you can't, you know, come together for, like I said, like you say, one of those uh, ego, you know, mowers. I mean, because I've seen an ego mower, and my goodness. Those would be perfect for a, a tiny little space, you know, in front of a building. I mean, it would just knock that out in about a half an hour or less. I mean, what's the problem here, folks? Or is it a case of red tape entangling everything such that nothing gets done? I think it's probably I some mean, of it, that. And quite, quite honestly, like that whole excuse, like I was saying, that uh mm-hmm. well listen uh that's the that's the old telecoman excuse right like i don't have one small enough so i can't go in there right and <laughs> really telly's not even allowed to go into home depot anymore the last time you went in there he was wearing shorts and somebody mistook him for a uh a stick of drain pipe that was on sale and they kicked him out Uh-oh. so he's not even allowed yeah. to go back in there yeah it's a sad story yeah. but uh no, this lawn here looks to be just the back. Oh, we got look at this. Jay Pink's already on it. I'm I'm doing a little uh, Google Earth mm-hmm. here real quick. Polygon. Let me do this real quick. This can't be more than three thousand square feet. I will or say less, too. I mean, with imagine, you know, the article says it's the mayor that is coming up and saying, "Why can't we afford a mower for this place?" How how crappy that must be for the city that you have the mayor that's the one oh, that's coming bad. up coming down with yeah. the hammer being like we can't mow our lawns. I mean that's yeah, yeah that's Why not? going to your CEO Why not? and coming down on you as a little city employee. Mm-hmm. Really, that was down uh, it, he didn't plan on uh, those people showing up at the city council meeting, and when it did, he was not afraid to throw. All y'all motherfuckers under the bus. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's because eventually had a mower the next day. I I hope so because, yep. like you all say, that could be done with one of those uh, eagle mowers rather easily. Because what is that like? Like Ryan said, uh, less than three thousand square feet, and. Your lawn at home is about three thousand or so, too, or a little bit over that, right, Evie? Yeah, my backyard. It does. It does just fine, right? It it makes it, you know, it makes it through the entire backyard. So I'm not seeing a good reason or or excuse. I mean, to me, this just sounds like uh, bureaucracy tripping on itself. Mm. You know. They're, Somebody they're that doesn't want to get off the mower. Somebody doesn't want to get off the zero turn and push mow. That's what this is. 
That's how this all started. Well, come, somebody started well, come care on. Said, I'm serious. You exactly where this started. And then somebody Ryan, said, oh, we'll take sure. care of it. And then they started doing it. And then the city workers drive past every day and they're like, look at that. Mm-hmm. They're mowing a forest, those suckers. And then Ryan, mayor, the mayor got Ryan, involved. Ryan for Sheen, because do you know that I mow approximately an acre of grass per week on foot? You know that I do that every just about just about every week, about an acre of grass. Yeah, and you're well <laughs> suited to it. But I'm saying that these guys are not most likely wimp, <laughs> weak <laughs> man. Weak for sure. Now let's talk about something else that's weak here. Uh, we're jumping over here to Rockport, Rockport, uh, Maine. As a matter of fact. Uh, very famous. They've got uh, branded shoes and some other gear that they sell uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's branded as Rockport. But uh, So, no, they're trying to determine if grass can be replaced with more benign flora uh, and start there at the Rockport town offices. And, of course, you know, a little kitschy uh, intro here. No, this is not about cannabis dispensaries. It's common lawn grass <laughs> whose existence so irks a select board member that he wants a, only fescue-free flora on town property. Excuse me. And while Eric Boucher has suggested small-scale trials at first to explore alternatives, if his colleagues embrace his ideas, it could mean the eradication over time of all grasses from parks, cemeteries, roadsides, and all town landscaping. That was the gist at the board's uh, November 14th meeting. It saw Boucher take the lead, leading a litany of problems with lawn grass. Excuse me again. They range rapidly from escalating mowing fees to hazards posed by pesticides and pollution from lawnmowers. The select board took no action on the future of Rockport, nor was the potentially explosive issue of regulating private lawns discussed. The comments of those who participated in the agendized discussion suggest there could be ample official support to begin limited testing of alternatives to grass. Quoting Boucher, I just don't like grass. In response to which alternative he does prefer, is growing moss on part of his lawn and said it only has to be cut once a year. Who cuts moss? I'm I'm talking about replacing all the grass tomorrow. I'm talking about in segments. I want to see if we can try something. A section of the town office space. Some graveyard spaces. The graveyard mowing at Seaview Cemetery is crazy. I mean, what do we spend? $30,000 to mow a graveyard? That's a lot of money for mowing. Town manager John Duke noted the figure is $40,000. He described the mowing costs as tremendous. The current three-year contract being uh, twice the cost as the prior agreement. Invited to participate in the session, Douglas Cole, it's blah, 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 blah. Uh, they talked about a pilot program in a neighboring town of Rockland. Uh, let's see here. So she completed, uh, this is a, uh, uh, who is this person? Maggie Dwyer, Megan Dwyer of the Cons- Conservation Committee, said that she completed the uh, main the UMaine Cooperative Extension Service and is also a master gardener. Uh, you know, they go on to say, hey, listen, uh, there's, there's a cop, uh, outright elimination of grass in all places doesn't necessarily make sense. It's sort of what the, the gist of it ended up being. They're not quite ready for this, but gentlemen, how is it that a town here, let me, let me, Down of 3,400 people, right? 
could just say, hey, we're not going to have grass anymore in any of our public space. Is that, is that really practical? Or am I missing something here? I don't think that's practical at all. I mean, think of the, think of the sports that your kids are playing. So are you going to do some alternative on the baseball fields for the outfield? So that they're going to be mm-hmm. out there playing on clover or whatever. How's that going to, you know, change up the the cleats and all of a sudden the kid gets stuck or something like that versus how the ball rolls um, or just your, your park spaces around the parks that your kids play at. Um, it just doesn't make sense to completely eradicate it. I get, you know, it's a good thought. I think that, you're looking for alternatives that use less water or less inputs, you know, both from, you know, water or fertilizer demand, but also a person, you know, people demand of cutting it constantly. But it also has value to it. Um, the, you know, the point, you know, a big point of grass is just the value of the appearance. And, you know, if you remove that, I think of like the the gravestones that if you remove it from the cemetery, it's sort of paying respect to all the people that have rested there and you mm-hmm. want it nice and upkept and removing it, replacing it with something else kind of seems a bit disrespectful to all the people that lay rest there. Um, I, But I do understand using maybe less sustainable cover ground covers in certain areas but you can only do that to a certain extent there's going to be spots that are out in the sun that require to have grass you know either to be maintained or for you know your kids to be playing on yeah yeah you know that's a good point because to me i'm always the strongest advocate for grass but in areas where it serves a purpose and it is practical to maintain it. Whereas I say that on roadside type areas and areas that are just supposed to have ground cover, but they don't necessarily serve like a, another human function. Like for example, kids are not playing on it is sure. I'm in favor of a ground cover that requires less upkeep and less maintenance. Uh, and here's the thing about moss. Moss only grows in wet and shady areas. It does not grow so much in areas that are more sunny, right? So it would be hard to get grass to grow in all areas because I suspect that this Mr. Boucher has a yard that is covered over by trees. So moss is the only thing that can grow for him. I mean, I get it. But then the rest of the municipal grounds, I'm pretty sure, are not like that. So I'm just not imagining. And here's my other question, too, about alternative ground covers. I have two questions about them. Number one, is how feasible or practical is it to keep a stand of that ground cover 
free of invasive weeds? That's first question. Second question for ground covers that are used in more public areas that are, you know, trafficked by children are is this particular ground cover or plant material extremely attractive to bees? And the reason why I ask that is because for some people, a bee sting is no big deal. For other people, a bee sting means a jab with an EpiPen and then a ride in the ambulance. You know, that's, that's something that I think about as well when people talk about alternative ground covers because as far as I know, a maintained stand of grass will not have bees necessarily visiting, you know, that area. They'll be off in the shrubbery and, you know, in the flowers and not necessarily in the lawn where the people are. Here's my question. You know, how do we not blend some of the, uh, the elements from our last story, right, with this one? How, how mm-hmm. is it not being explored to, you know, keep the grass for the points that Evie makes? I, and I, I 100% agree with those that, you know, it would be, you know, kind of reprehensible for a lot of different reasons to just remove grass because we don't like grass, right? Uh, there's lots of things, right, in, in town or in the cities that we live in that we don't like that are manifestations of life as we know it, and we just need to get better at maintaining them. And so in this case, my question, gentlemen, is does the cemetery that was being mowed for $40,000 just not uh, seem to be a perfect candidate for a robotic mower? Hey, I mean, that's Sim- not, a bad, not a bad idea. I mean, and all, all that would mean is just, keep the batteries charged on that mower and the the little razor blades underneath the mower replaced on a regular basis. And uh, that would be, hey, you know what? We got to get our resident rocket scientist on that. <laughs> we will. We will. And we'll see mm-hmm. if uh, maybe Mr. Boucher can ask Santa for a uh, a robot mower for Christmas. We'll see how that goes. All right. Well, and I will say... Know, I will say, on top of just a robot mower, that you know a lot of what we get excited about is the new and upcoming cultivars of grass, and Ooh. so many of them are uh, less inputs, more sustainable, more drought tolerant. Everything that you want that requires less actual input from the people. So, if an issue is that you know they're having to cut this grass you know, so many times, well, then you can cut back on the fertilizer or you can go something to like the fine fescues that doesn't require as much nitrogen, doesn't grow as fast. Um, Evie? And so you can look at, I, I think even just looking at newer cultivars and newer varieties is equally, or that's achieving the same kind of outcome that they're looking for by looking at crown covers such as moss that's a great hey look at that that's, that's, that's a great point pan, so that's a great point because let me tell you something i am jealous literally jealous of people that can grow things like fine fescue okay and the reason why i'm jealous is because that is a true 
low input, don't touch me and let me be kind of grass. Because I think I've talked with other people growing fine fescue, like uh, Gravy Lookout, and his experience with fine fescue is that the less you apply to it and the less you do to it, the better it is. If, you know, maintenance and inputs are an issue, I mean, the less you do to it, the better it looks, the better it performs versus I get it when a grass turns into a huge suck of mowing, fertilizers, chemicals, products, etc. I mean, I get that, you know, that's, uh, and, you know, I got to tell you that in most cases, when a grass or a turf area starts to become that, even I question, was this variety of grass a good choice for this situation? Was this a good idea? Or are we going to turn this into another, it's here, uh, we can't afford to change to something that's more practical, and so now this turf area is on hospice lawn care. Uh, and I Just think to that's the thing. Alive. Like, <laughs> this this would be, you know, my my challenge would be, who gets to decide, right? Uh, who's going to inform the select board and city manager, the mayor, whoever, right? Who's going to be that those voices in the room, right? To say, hey, this is what we should try and trial. You know, uh, of of different species, different types of plants, things like that, right? Or different maintenance strategies, or a combination of all those things. I think a lot of times, and from my view, right, my point of view, I see this a lot where uh, folks rely simply on Google. I mean, literally, people who are elected to come up with the best ideas for their village, their town, their county, their state, whatever the part, you know, whatever the, the you know the uh, parcel might be. And that's the best they can do. And I think this is a great opportunity for hopefully industry uh, in that state to reach out. And so uh, I'm going to make mention of it to some folks I know up there, and uh, we'll see if they can do it and maybe help them out. And again, there's, this isn't saying that uh, they want to bathe this stuff in pesticides and all this and that. It's quite another thing. It's saying, hey, listen, uh, we want to be part of the solution. We think that grass can be a part of that, right? just in a little bit different way than what you might think, right, about grass and all those preconceptions you might have about it. So, you know, for now, Mr. Boucher, maybe you should visit the cannabis dispensary. I think your glaucoma is actually <laughs> All right. We're going to move on right now over to the returns because, hey, anything that ends on cannabis uh, is a return. So uh, let's go to those returns. All right, gentlemen, first up out of uh, Golf Course Management Online, uh, the, the trade publication of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, uh, we're talking here about soil moisture sensor technologies compared to traditional ET-based uh, irrigation practices and what they found. So read this kind of this a little summary here that they go through. And uh, starting off here, golf courses spread across the southwestern United States continue to be significantly impacted by extreme and persistent droughts. Many state and local governments have 
recently implemented sweeping emergency ordinances that significantly limit or prohibit the use of irrigation water for various turf areas and residential and commercial landscapes alike. Restrictive legislation aimed at reducing water usage is nothing new to superintendents and turf grass managers in the southwest. Persistent drought, however, combined with warming temperatures and reduced availability of water across the region has brought increasingly difficult challenges for many golf facilities and fears of more intense water restrictions are a reality many may soon face. While turf reduction projects in out-of-bounds and rough areas of the golf course have dramatically reduced water consumption and have been shown to be one of the more effective solutions to reducing water use, more focus can be made on large playable areas of the golf course like fairways, which make up roughly 30% of the total maintained turf areas of an average-sized golf course. So they go on to talk here about soil moisture sensors, right? In-ground soil moisture sensors and also ones that can be used above the surface and uh, pushed in and checking spots, right? And also uh, talking a little bit about ET rates and how those might be used, right? So traditionally, if you want to think of it like this, we've talked a little bit on this show and others about evapotranspiration, and essentially that is right the amount of water that's lost through the soil and the evaporative heating, right, that occurs throughout the day. And then also the transpiration, which is basically how the plant sweats and cools itself by expelling water in the form of carbon dioxide, right? So you take those two together, and we can uh, reasonably estimate how much water is lost from a turf grass system on a day-to-day basis. And that number is expressed in inches, right? Seemingly just like we get, you know, say somebody will say, oh, we got a quarter inch of rain last night. Well, we can say with ET, hey, we lost a quarter of an inch of water today based on evapotranspiration rates. And we're able to figure this out by kind of combining a few different factors. One is the uh, solar radiation or the energy that the sun is putting out, so a brighter, sunnier day uh, in June, let's say, as of October, where the sun's a little bit closer towards the northern hemisphere, might elicit you know more of a response in that uh, category there in the summer. Also, too, we look at wind, right, which will dry uh, soils out, dry out plants. Also, temperature, right, always a function. And uh, finally, yeah, yeah, those three things. So we look at those three things as our um, as our our ET model, right? And from there, we're able to then deduct and figure out what we have. So basically, what this study is saying is that uh, you know there's a different way of doing this. We've got these soil moisture meters that we can dive into and look at individual areas, and not just necessarily say, well, you know, the entire you know fairways, you know, all of them lost the same amount each day. So as they did this, they research, They did this research here at Cal Poly Pomona, Southern California, looking at uh, fall of 2018 through the spring of 2020. Now, they didn't look at anything during the winter dormancy season as this is on uh, warm season grass, right? So there's no real reason to look at how much water we're gaining or losing when we're in essentially a, uh, you know, a dormant situation, right? So for the purpose of this study, they looked at uh, fairway-type conditions, so they're mowing a little bit lower. Maybe not uh, Ray low, right? But they <laughs> they looked at uh, a few of these things. And so we look at the study here. And JP, if you want to go to that graph, that bar graph right there, perfect. So here's what we're seeing is we've got a couple of soil moisture sensors here. Uh, Toro, the Rainbird, and all the, also the Tucor, which is uh, another brand that's coming to the marketplace here as of late. So looking at all these here, gentlemen, and look at the differences in water consumption when we look at specifically ET, right? So the blue line showing much, much, much greater water usage. So when we're estimating, again, we're estimating mm-hmm. ET, even if we have a weather station on the property and even if we're just saying, hey, 
here's what we think it is. What we find is that there are, you know, microclimates within the golf course. We understand that there's difference, differences in soil uh, composition, soil physics, right, that exist within the property. And so here we are showing that in some of the toughest conditions, especially, look at that summertime, right? You know, even with yeah, the worst. Go ahead. You know, Ryan, I got to kind of look at this and, you know, this cor corroborates with actually how I manage water, especially in the summertime, in that, do you know where I take my ET to, typically? I take my ET down to about 50%. I'm not at 100% replacement every week. I, I, I typically take it down to about 50%. And by doing that, I save a lot of water, and I also mitigate another issue, which is excessive surge growth. And it sounds like on the golf courses, if you go by ET, sounds to me like you're kind of overwatering. That's what it looks well, like, because well, <laughs> here's the thing say, is that... Go ahead. Because it looks to me like you put in one of those moisture sensors and you can keep the grass alive with about half the water that you would be putting down if you were to observe replacement via ET. Well, and the funny thing is, too, is that, you know, the way that they, eat, they, they ran the ET irrigation, it was only three days a week they were running it, so they were basically tasting it from the previous two or three days and then only mm -hmm. running that irrigation essentially like, uh, I was thinking it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Monday, Wednesday, Sunday, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, again, the replacement of that ET just sends things into a tailspin when we look at, you know, water usage. Because, again, if we're, if we're just going back and looking at, <laughs> excuse me, water consumption, right, even in the summer of 2019, the peak of this study in terms of water usage, right? The worst performing, I don't even know if you want to call it worst performing, the sensor that, you know, uh, put us at the highest water usage, right, for these plots was the two core at 2,000 gallons, right? Above that, right, was the ET-based model, right, where we're irrigating mm -hmm. three days a week, and we surpassed that by over 33%, closer to 40% in real terms, right? more irrigation with ET than our our highest grossing uh, sensor technology. Now, the other two were far less than that, almost 50%, actually more than 50% less than the ET in the summer of 2019. So it's really, really crazy to me that we have this technology that's there, and yet we're not using it. We're still using ET, and I think ET is an important number to know and to understand, right, from a management perspective. We know that we have a lot of good data out there that suggests that we can manage, you know, ET, uh, manage irrigation based on ET down as low as, in some cases, 50%, 60%, even on cool season grasses, right? But my question to you, gentlemen, is what would be the barrier? Take cost out for a second, because the cost really isn't as bad as people think, but what would be the barriers to lawn care folks, DIY, and professional lawn care folks from adopting this type of a setup for uh, not only programming irrigation, but forecasting irrigation needs, you know, week over week, month over month. Right. I can think of one where 
Here, do you know why I'm fond of bulldozers? It is because hide the bodies. no, not to hide the bodies, but <laughs> because my enemy, when trying to manage water, is layering of different materials in the soil profile and soil itself. That is like not my friend. And hence the bulldozer, because if I were God, most of the places I deal with would get scraped out and all the existing soil replaced with about two feet of sand. And that way I have a uniform profile that then becomes extremely predictable. And I think that's the other thing, too, is that soil, we're talking about soil physical characteristics, right, as it relates to water management, but you still have to have a way to estimate and figure out, okay, hey, I know reasonably how that will, you know, perform in this, but that's on a macro scale. It's not down to the micro level to say, hey, Mrs. Jones has that same soil that Mrs. Smith has, and Mm -hmm. it takes a little bit more to get Mrs. Jones wet than it does to get Mrs. Smith wet. That's and not a function of age you know either. Yeah, and Telly just brought up an important point too because I find out something about people's irrigation system when I take them down to 50% ET. And what I find out is their irrigation coverage stinks because usually what happens... Time's up, it's over. This is where... I take issue is that a mediocre half-ass chuck-in-a-truck irrigation system will perform and keep the grass green if you're constantly overwatering. Yep. But once you take it down to like even 75 or 80% ET, any deficiencies or excesses in coverage flash like a neon sign on the Vegas Strip. Okay? So, it I'm shows. Gonna, <laughs> oh, I believe it. So, Evie, I was going to ask you from a cool season perspective, right? We're t this is an article all about warm season, but I believe many of these things would be apparent within warm season as well. So my question to you is, you know, take the sensor technology out for a second and just talk about from a proper water management standpoint, how much easier does that make growing cool season grass, especially when it's rough outside in terms of, you know, the weather's unpredictable and or it could be tough, right, for growing cool season grasses. Does that make, does that make the biggest difference or is there something I'm missing as far as um, uh, one facet of management that you have to get right? If you it's for the average homeowner, I would say it's definitely has to be one if not the biggest thing that they could if it was out of their control and just set up yep. automatically that that would be one of the biggest things to make you know almost all the yards in the neighborhood look about equal um and i think you were you were asking about the barriers of entry here sure. i think one of them would possibly be the installation um you know, a lot of there's obviously issues that Ray brought up of, um, you know, irrigations may not 
be covering all the areas correctly. But, mm-hmm. you know, when they're installing the irrigation or nowadays, they almost always do it. Well, they'll do a rain sensor. And mm-hmm. a lot of times the installers will set up, you know, they'll just set up a schedule for you to start off. And maybe they're targeting to get one, one and a half inches per week. And, you know, you always talk about the good, better, best. And I always think of that's you're just targeting one to one and a half inches. You know, that's might be okay. It's good. ET is probably better where you're at least have a better knowledge of the water usage of the plant. But one of these sensors is definitely like the best um, option as far as tracking how much water that the plant demands and not overusing but that mm-hmm. may take there's the installation you know i think of like um with the robot mowers having to have a you know the wires around your property if you have to have some sort of wire that goes out to a sensor or it's out in the middle of the lawn or something like that if it's not buried um that that could potentially get in the way um also the calibration of the sensor you know if something happens that you know, you turn off the water or you forget to turn it on and the calibration gets um, out of whack that you either need to recalibrate it and then it could, you know, set off further problems of not watering or overwatering to try to keep up with the what the sensor is saying. Um, but in general, it's it's unmatched of how good you can dial them in. And especially like you were saying, Ryan, with the microclimates on golf courses. If you could even dial in the microclimates that you have at your own house, yeah, then you could save your front even yard, your more backyard, water. Evie. Yep. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Where my what I what I do when possible when dealing with an irrigation system is I pay attention to the difference between, say, a shadier area. Versus an area that gets full sun and more exposure to air movement because I know for myself that, for example, the area that's shaded and not getting as much sun is going to lose less water per week. And yet, what I find when I walk into somebody's irrigation controller is that the sunny areas have been set exactly the same as the shady areas and in the meantime of course the grass is literally suffering from too much water i mean to me you know what my ideal soil sensing system would be controlling each zone individually to where each valve is controlled by a sensor where the the sensor is plugged into the ground in that area that that zone is covering. And then, so for example, if it's shady and not losing a lot of water and the soil stays wet, hey, irrigation doesn't switch on there, you know, every couple of days for 10 minutes. It's just no water there. And then, of course, the area out by the street that has all the heat reflected off of the asphalt, you damned well better be watering that or else you're going to have crispy grass. <laughs> and crispy grass uh, and is never a good thing. 
Right, and I, I think there's two other parts of that that are, are really crucial. Number one is that the irrigation layout is correct, right, in being mm-hmm. able to meet those demands, right, which is somewhat of a challenge sometimes. So you have the best sensor, but if you have poorly laid out irrigation, right, it could come back to bite you. Lousy. And the, the yeah. last thing is, and as Telly uh, so eloquently pointed out here, that coverage can be a concern, right, in certain areas that we have mm-hmm. better, you know, more, better coverage or poorer coverage, right, and in that sense, yeah. I think the thing that people need to realize too, even on a golf course, right? Even with you know irrigation systems that cover hundreds of acres and literally cost easily just to walk in the door, million, two, millions, million, yeah. million four, yeah. Yeah. a couple million, something like that, yeah. a couple million. Yeah, <laughs> we still hand water. We still mm-hmm. hand water because there's only a finite point to which that irrigation system can be correct. So even if you you know you can set it and forget it. Be fine. Resign yourself to that fate. But you know there are there are reasons that they're coming after you know lawns in Colorado in the Colorado River Basin and everything like that right now because people don't know how to do this and we've entrusted people with too much responsibility now because water's at a premium in many of these areas and now we're left to deal with this. So hopefully the soil moisture sensors will get a much better look. Um, maybe we'll do a little bit of a deep dive on those here. As we go through the winter time, we use them quite a bit uh, on the sports field side, specifically for the reasons stated, and some other ones too. So it's a, it's an interesting topic. But gentlemen, that is all of our returns today. And uh, I, in closing here, I just want to remark a little bit first and say thank you to Evie again. Uh, always appreciate having somebody who's so thoughtful, well spoken, and just good looking. I mean, the guy puts us to shame. Hopefully Sheila doesn't watch this episode. She'll probably fly right over to Minnesota, Ray, and well, you know. You know what? She's gonna have to get. She's gonna have to get through Mrs. Evie first because it's true. Here's the thing. I'm gonna say, put this out there. Uh, Mrs. Evie is a looker. Okay, so (laughs) Sheila, Sheila ain't got nothing on Mrs. Evie. All right, there, I said it. <laughs> well, I don't know if there was a reverse for for hot wife porn, but uh, I think Ray just stepped into it right there. He's uh, he's the hot Hawaiian porn. So if you're into that kind of thing, <laughs> check check it out. Ray will set you up on his OnlyFans too. Uh, with that, gentlemen, we've got uh, our next recording for Burner Return will be on Sunday, December fourth. We're off next weekend for holiday, so happy Thanksgiving to all of you. We'll entertain that here in just a moment. And uh, secondly, this, uh, let's see here, next next Thursday, December the 1st, December the 1st, uh, we're here live with Joey Poa, the Lawn Warrior, <laughs> one of our favorites. I'm sure it'll be a candid and uplifting conversation, there's no doubt. But last things last is uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. If you're listening to this and you're uh, getting away from family while you're visiting and you need a minute just to cheer up. That's right. Needed a, needed a minute to cheer up or you're uh, traveling and listening to us do this. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for following along with all of our crazy antics, our bullshit, and uh, you know maybe even co-signing a little bit of that bullshit too. We love you, and we'll see you all on the next one.